1: Your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest, coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the retro movie roundtable. Welcome to where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest. Sadly, today, not joining me is my usual uh, co-host and good friend, John Flack, but today we have his best friend and a heck of a co-host, familiar voice for all of you, guess who's back? Back again. Fry is back. Tell a friend. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Russ. Thank you for that Backstreet Boys reference. That's Eminem, man. Oh.
0: Okay, something I equally didn't listen to back in the early 2000s.
1: Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, So as you see, uh, Brian Fry's here, and we, we, can't, uh, we can't pick up our early 2000s nostalgia well, but uh, this is going to be off the record, on the QT, and very hush-hush, because today, joining us is, from after the credits, from Los Angeles, California, Tyler Harlow. Tyler, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? So good, man. Always a pleasure. We're talking movies. I'm, I'm definitely going to be good. Oh, yeah.
2: And this is a great one.
1: So as I mentioned, you're the head and creator of After the Credits, which is a really cool website. Tell the viewers at home what this is. It's a website
2: that I created. The link is uh, afterthecreditsblog.com. I I love movies and I love talking about movies. And I thought, why not channel that uh, love and excitement and passion into a a website so that uh, other people could share that?
1: It's pretty cool. I mean, it's a lot of content. You got it up there. I see you've got everything playing now, and there's a lot of information about stuff out there that's actually in theaters now. Uh, you've got TV. You've got some video games, in fact, too. So it's 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 a little all over the place. Uh, uh, how do you keep up with it all, man? Um.
2: Well, uh, originally I didn't. Um, it was just me. Um, I really started getting into it in November, and I did... Uh, I think 19 reviews, movie reviews by myself in that whole month. And, uh, it was a lot, it was a, uh, a lot of, lot of work, a lot of time. So I, uh, have a couple of friends that will, that are helping me out, write reviews, you know, any, not just reviews is anything entertainment related. And, uh, yeah, we're just, uh, looking to get all that information
0: out there.
1: Well, that sounds fantastic, man. It is cool, man. Uh, Thank you uh, for coming on the show and sharing your expert knowledge with us. Uh, I think we got to ask you, though, some deep-cutting questions. Are you ready? As
2: ready as I'll ever be.
1: Who is your favorite female actress?
2: I'd have to say right now, and I'm going to do a tie, Charlize Theron or Amy Adams. I think that they're both incredible actresses, and they're turning in some of their, their best work especially recently, and uh, especially Amy Adams. It seems like she's in everything, but she doesn't ever phone it in. She puts in a great performance. She's very dedicated, and uh, there are some movies that hinge on her performance, like uh, Arrival from a couple years ago. I thought that she was fantastic in that, and I uh, just look forward to the uh, to the role she keeps taking.
0: Have you watched Sharp Objects yet?
2: I haven't gotten a chance to. I really want to because I also like Jillian uh, Flynn. I think she's a fantastic writer. I've read the book. I haven't gotten a chance to see the show. don't have HBO, so I'm either going to have to steal someone's Go code or uh, pay through it through uh, Hulu or Prime or some, something like that.
0: Well, as a longtime book peddler, we appreciate you reading the book first. Of course. He runs a movie website, man. <laughs> <laughs> well listen and, and just on what you said about uh Charlize, i uh atomic blonde blew me away and i love seeing how many of these podcasts i can plug atomic blonde on this is at least <laughs> the second but uh yeah if you haven't seen atomic blonde yet totally worth it
1: it's interesting we asked the same question to josh evans on the never-ending story episode and he also got asked the same female actress question he also said Charlize. so uh it's deja vu all over again, but it's uh it's fun <laughs> to hear it from another perspective. So Hello Charlie's Theran. <laughs> what is your favorite childhood movie, Tyler?
2: I find it very uh, ironic that you happen to mention never ending story because I, I I also tied on that one. It's a uh, never ending story and then Rudy. I watched Rudy hey, a lot Rudy. when I was a
1: kid. Solid. Good ones, good ones. Who is your favorite movie detective?
2: I don't know. I I I think that there are some easy ones on my list that I could plug like Seven or Heat or even uh Hello Clarice and uh, mm. Silence of the Lambs, but uh ironically uh I, I might have to go with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character Brendan in the movie Brick. If if you haven't seen that oh. movie, uh it's one of Ryan Johnson's first movie if not his first movie. It's a uh, murder mystery noir set in modern day in high school and all the kids talk like uh
0: 50s detectives sold i would say it's it's pretty awesome if you haven't seen it already i haven't but i will hey russ uh can i jump in here real quick go for it i wanted to talk about uh dick tracy warren betty and uh rick deckard blade runner
1: so what is the last movie you've seen
2: uh the last movie i saw was actually glass it's a mess but it's a very enjoyable mess for me. I, <laughs> I, I freely admit its faults. I just had fun watching it.
0: Sometimes the best ones are the ones you just really enjoy that way. Yeah. I
1: I mean, ratings seem to only merit it on craft, uh, they don't always capture enjoyment.
0: Last movie, if you guys haven't had an opportunity to see it yet, The Greatest Showman was fantastic. I did oh, see yeah.
2: it. Oh, yeah. It's uh, that, that was. Ended up being one of my favorites from uh, a couple years ago. Uh, and I haven't originally, when I saw that movie in the theaters, I didn't like it. And then for oh, really? my job, I got sent the soundtrack and I started listening to the soundtrack a lot. And then went back and saw the movie and loved it.
0: I'm at the point now where if Hugh Jackman is in a musical, I will see it without worrying about what it is. He
2: took a very unlikable character and made, like in real life, P.T. Barnum, if you don't know, is a terrible person, uh, and made him very likable and very, um, you wanted the route for him to do right by his family. And
0: I didn't know most of the history of that. I
1: kind of assumed he was kind of a but.
2: Oh, he definitely is. <laughs>
1: So, we're going to get into the movie today, which is L.A. Confidential. It came out in 1997. It made $64.6 million domestically, according to Box Office Mojo. It places in 24th on the year in the box office. And the movie that places ahead of it is Anaconda in 23rd. And the movie behind it was in and out in 25th. This is a better movie than Anaconda, I'll tell you that now. And IMDb, yeah. <laughs> yeah, IMDb gives us a... John Voigt, no! <laughs> IMDb gives us a rating of 8.3. Uh, the critics of uh, Rotten Tomatoes really love this movie. They give it a 99%, so that's about as fresh as it gets. And audiences aren't far behind because the audience has given this a 94%. And it's got some Oscar hardware as well. It got nominated for nine Academy Awards, and it took away two of them. The winners were Kim Basinger for Best Supporting Actress, and as well as Hanson and Highland for uh, the Best Adapted Screenplay. It also got nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Dramatic Score, Best Sound, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, and Best Film Editing. However, every single one of those nominations that it didn't win went to Titanic that year, which came in and just rocked the whole world uh, Titanic just took everything that year. So
2: I, I was looking at that before this because I, I was wondering what it was up against. And it's just a shame that Titanic came out that year because I think this might have just cleaned up everything, at least for me.
1: Yeah, I hear you. So let's get into where you guys stand on this movie coming in. Uh, Have you seen it before? What were your thoughts coming in this time, if you had? How long has it been? When was the first time you saw it? So just give people a little feel for where you are on this movie. Tyler, take this one first.
2: So I was about 11 years old when this movie first came out. Yeah, so I I was a little bit young. My parents didn't want me to see the the R-rated movies yet, especially uh, violent ones. So I, I... I think I saw it more, uh, like a couple years in the future, where uh, I started to go back and see some of the movies that my parents didn't want me to see. I loved it. I, I, I love the mystery genre. I love the crime genre. There's just, uh, especially if, like '50s. Like n- nothing made me happier than seeing a bunch of dudes in suits with shotguns running around in this movie. It just all felt right to me, and it just. Yeah, i I fell in love with it from the the acting to the score I know we'll get into that later but yeah across the board like I, I've enjoyed this film for a long time so
1: awesome so you've seen it several times then oh yes okay and how long has it been since you last seen it
2: I believe that I, I watched it again after uh, Curtis Hansen passed away so it was about two years ago
1: interesting and uh, Brian how about you man what's your what's your uh, backlog with your backstory with this one
0: So we used to have this place back in college called Vintage Videos and Games. I don't know if it's still there in Morgantown or not, but it was this awesome little store where you could go in and buy movies for like two, three bucks on DVD. And uh, when I first went to college, I fell in love with the place because at the time, basically all my used stuff came from – this is pre-Amazon and everything else. So I was buying everything used from Blockbuster – And usually stuff went out pretty quickly. So if you weren't on top of your game, you couldn't get a whole lot of backlog product. So I found this place, just started buying up movies. I was like, oh, that looks awesome. Oh, that looks awesome. So I really just became a consumer of movies heavily at that point. And uh, this is one of the movies I bought. So at some point in college, I saw this movie It just it blew me away. I was like, this is a fantastic movie. And it really kind of kicked off my love of crime noir films, period. Kind of like how like if you go back and rewatch Ryan Gosling's uh, Gangster Squad, it would basically be a prequel to this movie. So it's I don't know. It's it's something I really, really enjoy.
1: Absolutely. I myself had uh, seen this one only one time before, but I saw it and loved it. It was probably about five years ago that I got to it. And I believe I got it off of one of the movie channels on TV. And my wife Mary and I watched it, really enjoyed it. And so I was excited that this was the movie that we're going to come back and do today because I have good memories. And i got to say, it holds up. Before we go forward at this point, though, I want to remind everybody... There's going to be spoilers that lie ahead. We're going to completely talk about all the major plot points in order to really assess the movie. So if you haven't seen L.A. Confidential, I highly recommend you do see it and then come back and finish listening here. And uh, if you have seen it, then we'll be back after this break. Ken Creeps here to ask, Do you want to save time in the kitchen? Of course you do. Well then, we have the perfect thing for you. It's the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. It slices, dices, juices, purees, poaches, fries, boils, broils, broils, tenderizes, vacuum seals, self-cleans, and shares the experiences of great movies. It even has a flan setting. Too good to be true? Well, it is. How does it work? Simply put it in your ears while working in the kitchen, and your cooking experiences will be dramatically improved. Yes, it's that simple. To order more Retro Movie Roundtable for your household, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place where you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review, and comment on the show. Tell them how to make the show better, if that's even possible. Compare it to other kitchen devices by giving the show a like on Facebook and writing the show at Retro Movie Roundtable at Yahoo.com. Act now, and for a limited time, we will give you two episodes of Retro Movie Roundtable for the price of one. It's that easy. What are you waiting for? The Retro Movie Roundtable is not a kitchen device and does not do most of the previously mentioned tasks. There is not a flaw in setting, but there is a great listen while you're working in the kitchen and will improve your cooking experiences. Do not let this offer pass you by. The Retro Movie Roundtable makes a great gift for your friends, family, or that weird quiet guy at the office. Do not delay. Act now. Retro Movie Roundtable. As mentioned before, we're about to get into those spoilers. And the no better way to spoil it than to go through the plot and refresh our memory. So if you haven't seen it, we got your back. Tyler's going to give us a plot summary. You ready, man?
2: I'm ready. We open in 1950s Los Angeles, where the police department is riding high after finally uh, imprisoning famed gangster Mickey Cohen on tax evasion. After Cohen's arrest, several members of his organization are taken out by a hit squad, and his heroin has gone missing. LAPD has taken pride that they are keeping the streets clean by threatening any other criminal organization that tries to set up shop and gets them to skip town. Soon we are introduced to our three main cops. There's Bud White, Quick to Anger, and enjoys punishing men who hurt women. During one of these incidents, he and his partner Dick Stensland cross paths with a former cop named Buzz Meeks, who is connected to Pierce Patchett, proprietary of the, of the Fleur de Lis Escort Service, where the prostitutes are made up to look like famous actresses. Second is Jack Vincennes, the celebrity cop who loves the spotlight, and is also a consultant for the Badge of Honor TV show. The third is Ed Exley, whose police detective father uh, was murdered and never solved. However, he won't step a toe out of line in his pursuit of fair justice until he becomes a detective, despite his Captain Smith's urging. After the bloody Chris, after the bloody Christmas brawl between cops and the Latino prisoners, Captain Smith and the DA demote Bud and Vincennes for their involvement, but Exley is promoted, after being very willing to throw his fellow cops under the bus. A short time later, Bud's ex-partner, Stensland is found among the dead in what would be dubbed the Night Owl Massacre. Exley and an angry bud begin their own separate investigations. Exley, along with Vincennes, investigate the lead that three African-American teens were seen with firearms in the area of the Night Owl. When arriving on scene, they find other cops who have discovered shotguns and a car matching the description of a car seen at the Night Owl. After a brief altercation, the men are arrested. Meanwhile, Bud, who recognized one of the victims, Susan Lefferts, from his run-in with Meeks, investigates Patchett, who gives Bud the name of one of his girls, Lynn Bracken, who has been made to look like Veronica Lake. After being questioned by Exley, the African-American men escape, and Exley tracks them, leading to a bloody shootout that leaves the men dead. Exley is declared a hero, and the Night Owl murders are penned on the African-American men, and the case is closed. After Bud begins an affair with Lynn... Lingering doubts plague all three officers. Bud questions Leffert's mom, only to discover the rotting corpse of Buzz Meeks under the house, under her house. Exley, who is becoming suspicious of Bud, uh, opens up to Vincennes about his father's death and how he uses the made-up name Rolo Tomasi as the name for any criminal who gets away with uh, their crime, and it's his inspiration for becoming a cop. Vincennes agree- agrees to help him, and not only discovered, discovers Bud and Lynn's relationship, but uncovers that cops are behind the murders. When he goes to tell Captain Smith, the captain shoots and kills Vincennes, but not before he utters the words, Rolo Tomasi. Captain Smith uses the name in conversation with Exley, who then realizes Captain Smith is dirty. Bud and Exley partner to discover what is really happening which is Captain Smith has uh, begun to take over Cohen's empire now that he is in jail, using cops as a hit squad and taking possession of Cohen's heroine. Meeks and Stensland were loose ends who used to work for Smith that needed dealt with and serving as the inspiration for the Night Owl murders. This all leads to a bloody shootout, with Exley and Bud having to fight off all of Captain Smith's corrupt cops. Bud is left for dead, and Exley is severely wounded, but not before shooting Captain Smith to avoid any chances of him getting away with his crimes. Bud survives, and he and Lynn drive off into the sunset to Arizona while Exley stays to continue on the force.
1: Really appreciate that. That's a lot of, go- a lot of stuff going on there, and you need to get a good job to bring it all together. So,
2: Thank you, and that's, that, that's like half the plot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but that's the major stuff. That's what we're talking about. I think people's memories are jogged if they haven't seen it since 1997. What do you guys think about the the plot? Brian, uh, how does the story on this one go down for you?
0: I think it's fantastic just in the way that those old kind of mystery slash detective novels go. Uh, They actually dived into this a little bit in um, the movie Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, where, you know, you always have separating plot points that end up tying together at the end. And it's true. That is how a lot of these, you know, crime noir things went. And it's just one of those plot points that I've always enjoyed. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think this movie really did any wrong.
1: Interesting. I thought I had been reading a little bit. I have not read this book. Have either of you?
0: I actually have not. I have not either. Shame <laughs> on me.
1: It's okay, I and mean, you don't have to read every book. Every book that's in the store. I wanted to look at a few things, and again, I haven't read it, but from what I read, so this is the f- this is the third book of a quartet of movie or books that take place in Los Angeles by James Elroy, and uh, it's a novel that it features three intertwining narratives of three detectives, as Tyler mentioned, Bud White at Exley and, and Jack Vacines. So. The book spans way more time, has way more tangents, and goes into far more directions, which a book certainly can do over a movie. And so this was really daunting to come into uh, this as uh, creating a movie. And sometimes when a movie is so complicated, you lose things. And they, they talked about cutting it down to only being about Bud White or and getting rid of Ed Axley's character. And the producers pressured. Well, okay, then if you can't get rid of Bud White, then or sorry, you can't get rid of Ed Exley, then let's make it only about him. We can pay a real actor to come in instead of Bud White. And so this movie had a lot going against it, as we may talk about a little bit later. But this is an interesting movie that had to find where it wanted to be within this. So the book has quite a bit more in it.
2: As to be expected, like like you said, some stuff just has to be cut. Due to the nature of of movies, or even even changed, I I know that they I, I've read some articles where they changed some of the aspects of the book and made it I guess uh, a little more cinematic in its reveals or how the scene plays out or you know things like that. It's it's uh, it's something that that has to happen though, and I you know I I mean if the if the stuff is this good in the movie, I'm very curious of what the book is like.
1: I've got a couple of differences, and you can let me know whether you guys like this or n- better or not. But from my standpoint, I think the movie actually made some great improvements. In the book, Jack Vincen's, uh character, which is played by Spacey, has way more of a role in it. And uh, after he loses his position, he goes into uh, – Vi- so he's sent to Vice, and he loses his wife. He becomes a drunk, and he seeks redemption at the end. So it goes a lot darker in his story, and they kind of cut all that out and just kind of keep it simple. And another thing that I think that was interesting is the book has a full-out love triangle between Lynn, Bud, and Ed. Uh, well, I mean, Ed and Lynn, and Bud and Lynn. Uh, and the movie revises this to just be, you know, Ed is kind of in a forced situation with Lynn. And it's just a brief physical encounter. Still very stressful for Bud, but nowhere near as involved as the book. And another big one is, in the book, Dudley's alive at the end. He doesn't get shot in the back. And, you know, he lives to the end of the uh, movie, which which considerably changed the ending. And uh, also the movie, adds, uh, the movie added the fight scene in the evidence where Bud and Ed start to fight each other and then get on the same page because in the book, Jack, Bud, and Ed all sit together, just piecing together what they know in a long, drawn-out conversation with not anything major going on. So not nearly as cinematic, as Tyler said. So, Brian, are uh, good moves for the the movie?
0: Oh, absolutely. It's just funny. My brain's been sitting here working as you guys have been talking about this because The Black Dahlia was another one of my favorite movies, which is apparently also written by this guy. And it also features a love triangle so and the whole detective crime noir style. So it's just another one of those things. I actually rushed over to check the IMDB for that just in case anybody, any of the detectives were the same name. Just out of curiosity, it was Josh Hartnett and Aaron Eckert in the love triangle with Scarlett Johansson.
1: Interesting. And as you mentioned, the uh, uh, Black Dahlia is one of the four books in the quartet as well.
0: Right. Yeah, that's why I was like, "Oh my God, did I not put this together earlier?"
2: Which I think the only crossover character is uh, the DA Ellis Low. He uh, he carries over into the Black Dahlia. Got it. De- different actor, but uh, the the character's sure. still there.
1: Interesting, Brian. Do you want to take us on a run through of the cast so we can get to know the who's playing who?
0: Oh, this is a fun one. There's a lot of good people in this. So uh, we start off with Russell Crowe's Bud White, Guy Pierce's Ed Exley. We got James Cromwell's Dudley Smith. We have Kevin Spacey's Jack Vincent. We've got uh, Danny DeVito is Sid Hudgens. We've got Kim Basinger is Lynn Bracken. We've got uh, David uh, Sh- uh Pierce Platchett. And Ron Rifkin, who's one of my favorites from my alias days d a Ellis Lowe, as we just were discussing
1: straight there and I always remember from uh you know Dolores Claiborne or a league of their own
0: he's usually not a pleasant person in movies
1: no, but he's not particularly unpleasant here
2: no he uh, uh honestly I think the uh the culture shock casting at least you know uh looking back on it now and how it might have looked in ninety seven I think it was actually really smart of them to cast someone like James Crom- Cromwell as Dudley Smith because he had just played the farmer in Babe like a year before this. And so they were like, oh, how could that guy be the villain?
1: Yeah, you suspect that he's a good guy
2: with a spotty Irish accent. <laughs>
1: What's that, boyo? <laughs> well, I think it's interesting in that uh, the movie seems loaded by today's standards, but at the time, the name value of these guys wasn't what it seems now. Russell Crowe was not a household name. Guy Pierce was an unknown commodity, both of whom are Australian, and uh, Spacey was building a name for himself, certainly, and had had an Oscar nomination. Uh, uh, did he win, Tyler? I forget.
2: Uh, yeah, this was after he won for Usual Suspects.
1: Okay. Basinger uh, certainly was known, but uh, she probably, she and Danny DeVito and Spacey were probably what got this movie going, is what Russell Crowe was saying in an interview. The fact that there were all these different characters made it a little harder to get made. Great, great cast. I mean, it seems like a dream team by today's standards, doesn't it?
0: Well, he oh. really hit a knockout blow, or at least um, Guy Pearce really hit the knockout blow with Memento, and that was like three years after this.
2: But you could, you could see the talent like under like just just re-watching this I mean Kim, Kim Basinger's great don't get me wrong but like Guy Pierce and even Russell Crowe who doesn't even look like the Russell Crowe that we know at this point I think they were the stars of the show and you know I I know you were speaking to Vincennes having more of a role in the in the book I but I I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, Spacey was kind of stunt casting and it was really to get the movie going, like you said, and then I wonder if he allowed the part to be trimmed down to give Russell and Guy the spotlight.
0: Very well, could be.
1: Well, actually, Curtis Hanson had been trying to work with Kevin Spacey for some time and had suggested him multiple times, and the studios were saying, no, 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 nobody went with this theater actor guy. And uh, when L.A. Confidential rolled around, he called Spacey up again and said, like, I don't think they're going to say no this time. Coming off of his uh Oscar win,
2: even looking at the poster I, I clicked on the the link of the poster here for uh here on IMDB. Spacey is the first name listed. He's very prominent it's Basinger, like really big. then it's Spacey slightly smaller. then Guy Pierce is behind Spacey and then all the way in the back is Ronald crow yeah it's, it's very interesting how they they marketed this movie because i I feel like people might have even come into this and like where did Spacey's role go?
1: So let's talk about each of these detectives here a little bit. We got Ed, who's kind of a political, straight arrow, intelligent kind of guy, but he's ruthlessly driven opportunist, I would say, uh, principled and articulate. Uh, Brian, what what was your take on Ed Exley?
0: Your typical uh, political climber. Um, I understood the kind of avenue he was going for, but uh, you could also see it from, especially how they portrayed him, that kind of insufferable Boy Scout. Uh, it's one of the things that got tossed around with Harrison Ford's Jack Ryan a lot, but I felt like it was never a demeaning piece for for Ford, whereas in this, like, you kind of saw why it pissed everybody off.
1: I think he undergoes the most transformation of any of the characters. Oh, hands down. He comes in, like you said, being squeaky clean by the book. I'm going to climb the political ladder to... Yes, I want to be beca- boss in the back. Yeah, once <laughs> I, I will still be opportunistic, but I'm here to I'm here to serve justice and I am willing to get my hands dirty so he learns to work with Bud to get the answers he needs. He learns to work with Jack to work these back channel sources. And so I just thought that he was probably one of the most interesting characters in that he undergoes the most amount of change. Still has an agenda and knows how to work the system, but he learns to become a leader by working with all these people who he thought he was better than coming in. Tyler, any, anything more on Ed?
2: I, I agree with you. His, his character had the, the most growth throughout the movie, but you could kind of sense that coming. I, I made sure that I had this, uh, this exchange written down. Uh, it happens very early in the movie. Uh, I'm not going to do the whole back and forth, but it starts out with the captain's with the captain saying, you have the eye for human weakness, but not the stomach and then he proceeds to ask him a bunch of questions cuz this is when he's kind of questioning Ed about whether he actually wants to be a detective. It's like would you be willing to plant evidence on somebody even if to to ensure their uh, indictment? No. Would you be willing to beat a confession out of a subject? No. Would you be willing to shoot someone in the back in order to off chance offset the chances that lawyers will get him off? And the answer he says no. And then he's like then don't be a detective.
0: Which, awesomely enough, is exactly what he ends up doing to the guy that was asking him at the very end of the movie.
1: Exactly. It's, it's foreshadowing that he learns to do all these things that he was set against doing, and he learns to do that to operate within the system. Even though initially he was willing to alienate everybody just to get ahead.
2: And it's, I think it speaks to the, uh, the, the power of the Oscar-winning script and the... Uh, as well as the the performances as well that that they're able to sell this transformation like you actually see him going through all these steps you see him learning that he can't be squeaky clean to be a detective and him being ultimately having to be okay with it.
1: So Bud is a rugged ends justify the means kind of guy but he's still driven by his heart and there's a there's a warm side to him because he falls in love with this prostitute Lynn and uh, definitely has a soft spot for women and Justice for Women. Brian, or, sorry, uh, let's go Tyler on this one. Uh, talk about Bud. What, what were your thoughts on Bud as a character?
2: He wasn't as complex and well-drawn as Ed Exley, but I, I still enjoyed kind of what comes across as like a brash and hard person, kind of falling in love and falling out of love with the things that made him successful in the police force, which was beating up people, which was kind of being this blunt instrument that captain smith and the other police officers would use to just really being in love and letting that win in the end and get out i greatly enjoyed that as well
1: i think he is a complex character because on the outside he is this instrument of destruction and he's a tough guy but i mean at the same time he he does have this heart he's driven by emotion and Even in a moment of weakness, uh, he has this complicated backstory about how his father hit his mother and, uh, you know, I guess killed her, right? Uh, While he was uh, chained up to a radiator, I think it was. And that might be confusing with the book. But, yeah, he is driven by this injustice in his life to become this person. And we even see a moment where he has a moment of weakness and true passion and anger uh, slaps Lynn because he's so hurt that she slept with Ed Exley, the guy that he just so hates um, there's a lot. I do think there's good complexity here. What do you What do you say on this one, uh, Brian, about Bud?
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, one of the characters that Bud really reminds me of, and this is another kind of gritty crime movie, although it's the other side of the coin in this one, is Mel Gibson's Porter and Payback, where. You know, you see him doing a lot of shooting, a lot of beating people up, but in the end, he's got a brain. I definitely think that the whole purpose was for you, and this is where um, Cromwell's character got him wrong, was, you know, he saw him as a blunt instrument, and when he ends up being more like a broadsword, it ends up turning the tables on him.
1: Absolutely. Brought the wrong guy in. And uh, the last guy I really wanted to go into depth like we're doing, which is a lot of fun, is the uh, is Jack Vincennes. Uh, you know, this is played by Spacey. He's a glamour cop, if there is such a thing, or a glamour detective. But he knows how to work the back channels. It's all about who he knows. He talks to people to find out things. But he's always looking for money on the side. He's looking to rub noses with the Hollywood stars and uh, plants drugs. You know, he's, he's, he's a who-knows-who kind of guy. Let's go with uh, Tyler on this one. What do you think? Uh, what do you think of Jackman scenes? He
2: actually is involved in one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which is uh, in my synopsis when the, the whole reveal of Guy Pierce about Rollo Tomasi and about you know that's why he became a cop, and then he turns to Jack and was like, "Why did you become a cop?" And Spacey's just kind of staring out into nothing, and he goes. I don't even remember, or he says, I don't know. That's a
1: real turning point.
2: That to me spoke worlds about that character who we've seen at this point wheel and deal and get money and doesn't care who he hurts to get more and more into the spotlight and be the, I I, I like that term glamour cop. Um, I, I, to, to see him kind of have like a, a moment of introspection, uh, I I think was very effective.
1: You're right. Uh, uh, That's definitely the big moment. His big moment is when he's questioned on that, but it it is a changing moment for him because he leaves his money at a bar, stares at his reflection in the mirror, and he's not sure that he doesn't like the fact of what he's become. He doesn't like the fact that he can't answer the fact of, why did you become a cop? And Ed had this inspiring story that drove him, and he didn't have that feeling behind them. So Ed recruits Jack, uh, to help him out because he knows how to work the channels, and I thought that was interesting. What do you, again? What do you think about Jack's character, uh, Brian? Here's how I would put Jack,
0: just based on what you just said. Um, Guy Pierce, in a way, does something very subtly that he himself says he's against. He, in fact, buys Kevin Spacey based on the back channel workings of what he did initially which was taking him out of his his element in his TV show and stuff like that so he knows how to work kevin spacey he hasn't pegged kevin spacey's character is one of the more interesting ones for me just because i i guess i kind of get the the glitz element he's very non-apologetic of how he makes his money of how he solves cases like everybody tries to give him a hard time, but the fact that he has zero care about it, like it, it gives nobody a, a real niche to like really dig him. That's why everybody kind of likes him and no one doesn't really. So I guess one of my favorite parts of the movie is how Guy Pierce can kind of work. Kevin Spacey, Kevin Spacey has this moment of clarity with Guy Pierce. And then in the end as his last act and this is one thing that I've mulled over a lot does he say that he'll tell Guy Pierce does he say it just because he finally gets it like why why does he say the name like did it just pop into his head I think he's like, doing it to I, plant – I, mean, I think
1: he's doing it so that Ed Exley might find out that he talked to him and that it's a it's a, it's a flag. I think, I think it's a seed he planted.
0: But I mean the more I think about it, it's like I could see him also saying it just because he's like, this is it. This is exactly what happened to Ed's dad. And he says the name because he's – it's dawning on him what he meant. Now, the unintended quant- consequence was he brings it up to Ed Exley. So I've seriously had this when I rewatched it to do the podcast – I had this huge internal debate on: was this intended to be this? Was it intended to be this? I felt like there were three avenues here, and I loved the internal mental debate on why.
2: I, I'm starting to, to to feel you on this, Fry, because uh, I, I I after he says "Rolo Tomasi," he kind of laughs to himself, like he chuckles. Yeah. And I thought that, like, in my head, I was like, oh, that's because he knows that Captain Smith is going to mention, like, he knows that he's setting him up. And that, you know, like, there's no way that Captain Smith is going to figure out that he's setting him up. Like, we got him type of thing. Mm-hmm. But now now I'm kind of kind of with you because uh, I actually thought Vincennes was the one character who, while he didn't, I don't think he completely arced, like, Bud and... And Ed did, but I thought he had like a small bit. I think he may have arced more than i I thought that he did, and had that moment of realization that, yeah, like like you said, like that this is what Ed meant this is the the this is the feeling,
0: yeah, and this is the guy that gets away.
1: I also wanted to mint point out how fun it is to watch Ed and Bud make a team they each each one brings to the other what they don't have, they're such foils for each other bud's this uh bad cop all emotion you know beat you up and then ed's a cerebral guy and at one point bud's like lamenting i'm just not i'm not smart enough to figure this out well cromwell also laid the illusion down when he told bud he's like i hate that guy and he's like the force needs smart people like him and then at the same time he told ed he's like bud's a good detective who's willing to do what needs to be done and that's foreshadowing in that those two guys will help each other with the parts that they don't like about each other coming together to reinforce and take down, oddly enough, uh, the guy who was fond of both of them, who was their boss. So, And they complete each other by throwing clips to each other, guns to each other, they they throw the keys to each other, like everything's working together and the way they shot that just reinforces these two opposite worlds functioning together to become one amazing officer.
2: Well, that's actually what I was going to mention. All three of their personalities make up one good cop.
1: Oh, you're, okay. Right. That's true. I mean, that's what it takes to take them down. So, um, I, I want to talk about the casting of who got selected just a little bit further. Elroy actually said that none of these characters meet the descriptions in the book, but he likes the casting so much in this one that even though he wrote the book, he now reads and sees these actors. So that's some pretty impressive casting.
2: It, it kind of shows you the power of casting because, like, who knows where Crow or Guy Pearce would be today if they didn't have this movie. Like, this was the movie... Like, I'm I'm sure they would have made their movies in Australia and things like that, but, like, this really opened them up to the American audience and to the, you know, it. I, I would argue that these roles opened up their careers. I don't, I don't think we'd have some of their landmark performances without this movie.
1: So I have a lot of casting notes on this one. Feel free to chip in as we go along here. But, uh, uh, Crow was an unknown name. As I mentioned, he, They liked him in the movie Romper Stomper, which I have not seen, where he plays a tough guy, and they liked him, even though in the book he's supposed to be the biggest guy in the whole force, he's really not that big of a guy. Uh, Crow uh, Crow was drawn to the fact that this man was truth and sensitive and uh, a tough exterior, and so... His performance on that, uh, um, uh, Sterling Hayden of Stanley Kubrick's uh, The Killing of 1956 was something that he went back to watch. So he wanted to get that beefy manliness that came out of World War II uh, to help create this character here. And Crow even recalled that Elroy told him that Bud White doesn't drink. And so to get ready for the role, he gave up drinking. And he said it's one of the most painful periods of his life. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he had
2: nothing to go home to after a day of shooting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Basinger actually first passed in the role second passed in the role and third passed in the role but curtis hansen didn't take no for an answer uh, at one point she got a call saying that her clothes were being made for her role and uh she had just had a little girl and wasn't really in the m- mode of acting but something told her that if this guy really wants me this much you do want to work with people who want to work with you so uh persistence paid off in this case
2: and got her an oscar
1: yeah
0: it's really interesting about Basinger just because before this movie was brought up to me for the podcast, I had just watched her in No Mercy with, um, I'm going to blank on his name now, um, Gene Crap. Okay. Anyway, I it, just another crime movie, detective movie from, uh, I want to say the 80s.
2: It was Richard but Gere.
0: Richard Gere. I'm sorry, not Gene. Gear is what I was trying to spit out. Um, anyway. Uh, I just watched this movie, and when I watched L.A. Confidential again, I was like, oh, she just kind of went for those damsel and distress roles, except in L.A. Confidential, she would never let you know she's in distress.
2: For sure. She had that 50s movie star confidence.
0: Well, I don't know if you guys have seen uh, Gangster Squad or not, but is the same kind of uh, machismo that um, – I don't know why I can't remember people's names right now, but the the main girl from EZA. Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Thank you.
1: This is really good podcasting. Try Fry tries to recall names of actors.
0: <laughs> you do a whole I just no, I, like had this huge like just brain block for a solid minute. Go on. It's all good. <laughs> no, that was it. Oh okay. I just bring, for for Kim Basinger, I just Enjoyed the fact that I was like, "Oh, another Basinger movie! All right, let's do this." And then she went on. Then she went on to work on Eight
2: Mile with Hanson. She liked working with him a lot.
1: That's true. Now, Tyler, what do we think about Curtis Hanson as a director, as well as screenwriter and co-producer? Here, he's uh, he's definitely the lifeblood of this movie. Uh, what are we, What are your thoughts on him and his contributions?
2: I knew that I'd seen a lot of his movies, but he he's kind of a. Uh, a movie chameleon because he like like i mentioned he did eight mile he also did like wonder boys with uh, michael douglas he he did a surfing movie uh, that came out a couple years ago i think that had gerard butler in it um he's just kind of
0: chasing mavericks yes that the, yeah that is okay. chasing mavericks. I remember that
2: and you know he he kind of like in the 80s and early 90s he did hand the rocks the cradle he did the river wild. So he was more kind of in like these thrillery things. And then he kind of switched genres. He's kind of a chameleon, but I mean, it's, it's really amazing when you read about all the things that he kind of did, wanted to do with uh, the aesthetic of the movie. And like, he, he didn't want the movie to look like a fifties movies. He, he wanted it to look modern. So he instructed the costume and set people to be very period accurate and then push it all to the background. So he wanted the movie to kind of he wanted to to live in the fifties, but also be something that almost looked modern, which i I thought was really interesting. And he had so many great camera shots. Like I wish that I had written down a bunch of them that I liked, but like there were a bunch of times where I was like, "Ooh, I like that shot. Ooh, I like." That. And if
0: if there was one setting where you could pull that off, it would be L.A.
1: Oh, for sure. To. A- to extend on what you're saying about what he wanted, uh, and you're right. He didn't want it to be nostalgic and he didn't want to create just a new noir, uh, audiences today actually don't tend to respond well to film noir and they don't relate to it very well. And it would never have gotten through with production, so to speak, but he wanted to focus on what was modern in the fifties. So we see the house is that, uh, like DeVito's office is really cool. I'll get into some of these things here later, but, uh, There is a lot of parts of the 50s, even today, that still come off as being extremely modern and ahead of their time. There's a strong embrace in the 1950s. We just won a World War II. Technology is our friend. And, you know, all meals will be in the form of a pill. We're going to have flying cars and technology is going to be our friend. And so there's a lot of optimism in the 50s. And in some ways, that idealism that holds through and carries through within art, culture, uh, product design, And technology of the 50s still to this day seems like it's futuristic. It still seems like it's pushing ahead. And a lot of those ideals uh, really are to be admired uh, for certain today. And he said that the one exception to that is he did want to let Lynn Brackett feel like she was a element of a former era and that he was okay with her because she was there to look like Veronica Lake. And she's the only character in the movie who knows what she is. Everybody else is grappling with a tough identity. Uh, Jack, Ed, and Bud are all grappling with you know, who they are and struggling with it, what they want to be, and what everybody else perceives them to be. Not to hijack you on that one, but I just thought that that tied in so well with some of those other elements that Curtis Hansen was talking about in some interviews.
2: For sure, and I I, I think that, that there was a lot more care put into this than i've seen in some of his other movies and i as i mentioned like in in my plot summary i cut out like half of the plot of the movie there's always something going on there's always something happening to any of the characters whether they're following a lead or they're in a shootout or they're falling in love they're fighting with each other they're fighting with you know, the, there's always something going on. I I didn't even mention Danny DeVito's character, who who's a very interesting character. He runs the Hush Hush magazine, with the the, the tagline that Russell started the the podcast podcast off with. Um, and he's very instrumental because he's also getting used by Captain Smith. He's being used in this manipulation of all these characters and. Uh, but the thing that's amazing is it it you're able to follow it all. Like in the end it all still makes sense. It all you can trace the lines back and you can it's uh it, it was all just very
0: impressive to me.
1: Brian, Curtis Hansen, what are your thoughts, man?
0: Um I agree with the chameleon statement. He definitely has a very diverse film base. I mean, everything has its own kind of excitement that thriller sense to it but um i would say that he is the or one of the best less known directors like if you had asked me three podcasts ago name four directors that you revere i'm not sure if i could have pulled his name out in a list of 15
1: i think this but, is the top of this is more than his mount rushmore i think this is the the, the top of his career. I don't know if you guys, I would assume. No, I, I, yeah. I
0: totally agree. I'm just saying that i I've, I've always really enjoyed this movie, but he's just not someone that pops into my head as like, Oh him. But then again, if somebody said, Oh, you know, the guy that directed LA confidential, fantastic movie. Let's do this. So yeah, I, I would say that, uh, I wouldn't be worried as a company hiring him to direct my movie. But at the same time, I'm not sure, you know, if he had had two or three more of these just knockout punches, I think he would be considered in the, you know, Hall of Fame.
1: I myself kind of took a look at his previous catalog and kind of went like, how did this guy make such a good movie? Or how did he not make more <laughs> good movies like what you're talking about? It, it is. I mean, The River Wild was great.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Underrated.
1: I hold this movie up, I guess, a lot. So I just I, I, I'm always amazed that. This guy did this movie, and he did it so well. So, I well, mean, the,
0: if you think about it this way, he's integral to some uh, Kevin Bacon usage.
2: Oh, for sure, but also to to Russell's point, it, it's st- staggering to think about the guy who directed this
1: his last movie
2: was chasing and chasing mavericks is his last movie with gerard butler
1: yeah which was enjoyable uh yeah but this movie is more than enjoyable perhaps (laughs) not
0: memorable but enjoyable
1: another fun curtis hansen story is guy pierce said that he learned a lot keep in mind this is early in his career uh through curtis hansen he said one of the biggest things he learned as an actor was the power of stillness Hanson would tell him to stand still and just let him do the camera work and just convey the emotion that's on his face. Pierce uh, was insecure about this at first, but he said it served him throughout the rest of his career in a really profound way. And Brian called out memento and those introspective moments that yeah. he is still, uh, you, I can see that Pierce learned that lesson here in this movie. So that's a fun uh, progression as an actor. So pretty cool that Hanson yeah. made that kind of an impact on him. Agreed. Yeah. I wanted to go into atmosphere a little bit, and one of the things that I wanted to talk about here is uh, Curtis Hansen also put together a series of images when he wanted to sell the movie and kind of a flavor, or essence, or spirit of what he wanted the movie to be. And he took uh, some of those images you see in the beginning when Danny DeVito's telling you about how wonderful L.A. is, uh, the postcard, the orange groves, the beaches, the open freeway of California, the California dream. But he also incorporated elements of like the like gritty celebrity magazine. So like that would later go on to influence hush hush. They actually did have smear media back in the day, kind of like they do today. And it was, it had graphically looked different. It was presented differently and other things were in there as well. Like bloody Christmas is a real story. The night owl is a real story that happened in LA and they collected real events And they wove those into the movie and it gave it a sense of authenticity. And like you guys were saying, he did want it rooted in the 50s, but he just didn't want you to be distracted by, oh, look at that toaster. Look how different things were in the 50s. And so Mm. he didn't want to sell the noir angle. He wanted to sell this is a California angle and there's all parts of society here. You see the black neighborhoods. You see the movie stars. You see the drug connections. The gangsters. You see uh, the prostitutes, and it's all happening in this place where all these interchanges and interstates are popping up. So it's it's a it's a city of intersections and, and fast speed.
0: Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't peg the uh, the time frame as being the noir aspect. Like noir has always been heavy heavily cynical. Like the the idea of crime noir as being you know fatalistic
1: mm-hmm. that's fair,
2: yeah,
0: not necessarily to do with the set or anything or or time frame where it's because I look at Blade Runner and I say that's crime noir,
2: oh, absolutely.
1: so Tyler, you live you live in Los Angeles, correct? I do. How much do you feel the uh, Curtis Hansen version of Los Angeles? Is it uh, overgrown by other elements, or do you really feel that mid-century uh, vibe around town as you go around town?
2: Uh, I honestly uh, think it depends on where you go. There, uh, there, there's a part in the movie where uh, they go to the Formosa Cafe, and it's where uh, Guy Pierce thinks that one of the prostitutes is made to look up like Lana Turner, but it actually is Lana Turner. It's that scene.
0: I love that scene.
2: And uh, that cafe is still here. It's actually a couple blocks from my apartment. So like, there are those locations that are still around and there are the places that still try to keep the old Hollywood vibe alive. But then you also have uh, a lot more traffic, a lot more people, a lot more modernization, uh, whether it's the due to the industry or due to uh, just kind of where society's heading today. But it, it's it's all fascinating. And uh, I, I meant to jump in on this earlier. Sorry to change topics on you slightly about L.A. Russell. But m- you mentioning that, uh, you know, they, they called from real events and things like that. That was one of the things that, like, I greatly enjoyed about the movie because I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, because I, I knew that those events – had happened as i was watching i was like oh man like it makes total sense that the this police chief would think to take over mickey cohen's empire while he's in jail by doing this like that that makes total sense to me and i i think it's uh a testament to their research and well not their research as it was mostly elroy's but uh just just to the the idea of that and i i Anything that that finds a way to move fiction into uh, to merge fiction and real life in a uh, palatable and uh, realistic way uh, re- really gets me.
1: No doubt about it. So going back to the uh, locations and stuff, I I have to put on my architect hat for just a minute and nerd out and tell everybody the house that uh, you know Patchett lives in is actually an amazing 1928-29 house uh, in Los Angeles by famed architect Richard Neutra. This is an early, early example of steel-framed housing in America as well as gunite, which is a sprayed-on concrete application. Um, it's got simple, clean forms, flat roofs, large expanses of windows. They celebrate the precision of industrial means and the construction of art kind of and technology all coming together. Kind of what I was talking about, this optimistic view of what the future could be at the time and to create something that was going to make the world a better place. And it's kind of amazing that, uh, they put this in there. It's never been shot in a movie before. And so that's one of the reasons Curtis Hanson wanted to go to it. And uh, it's perfect for Pierce uh, Patchett. He just shows he's a man of style, sophistication, bravely different from everything around at the time. A lot of rich people at the time probably would have been in a stuffy old mansion and they didn't want to do that with the character. So I really love this set piece. Probably of any uh, house or piece of architecture we've done in any of this uh, series, the Lovell House by Richard Neutra here just uh, excites me. Uh, is it just me or is, is this an, did this, this place jumped out at me as like the best location in the movie? Uh, is it just me, Brian? No, no.
0: I think a lot of the architecture is interesting, but it's also part of the reason I'd like to see more of LA. Um, I think there's definitely, uh, stuff out there, especially a lot of the, the houses from old LA. I mean, you can even go as far as Iron Man, you know, that iconic house, Um, I'm a huge fan of people doing weird stuff with their homes. So, which is funny because I have a very traditional house, but I don't know. I, I enjoy seeing it.
1: Absolutely. And another fun one, uh, the 1928 city hall building, they do a good job of kind of setting it in the scene there to make it seem like it's the tallest building in Los Angeles, which it was all the way through 1964. Uh, used to have a, a, um, uh, a zoning code that made sure no building in LA was taller than that. The, the old Venice Police Station is uh, also another police station in uh, Assault and Precinct 13. So, for fans of that movie, there's a little bit of overlap here. Uh, Lynn Bracken's house uh, was done. They put a lot of thought into this one because they wanted it to feel different. They wanted it to feel like you stepped inside of a fantasy. You, uh, the downstairs is. You're in Veronica Lakeland, and everything's very swoopy and very like far-fetched. Uh, but the upstairs, that's for Lynn. And that part of the house was different. It's more stripped down. And that's the real her. And so when she lets Russell Crowe into that part of the house, or I should say Bud White into that part of the house, she's letting him in because he sees her as somebody that's more than just a Veronica White lookalike. And that's why she liked him so much. I don't know if you guys picked up on some of those physical set pieces to reinforce the character there
2: i definitely did and the i think at one point the dialogue even backed it up too i think there was a part where russell crowe said they all know you as veronica lake but i know you as lynn um
0: Mm. yeah that's a good one
2: yeah no definitely and uh back back to your your architecture thing russ the uh all of the sets were real locations like they weren't sets they went out and filmed in la the only set that they actually had to build was the the motel where they would take people to beat up and uh where the final shootout happened that was the only set everything else was real locations
1: yeah and they turned it into swiss cheese too which is fair
2: (laughs) that's probably why they had to build it
1: probably um Brian, what do you think about the wardrobe? We got a period piece. Uh, the look and feel of the time is very immersive. And uh, what do you feel about the style and the glamour and the glitz of LA from these characters here? I think
0: that they did a good job doing wardrobe for a period piece. But at the same time, it being LA, who says it needs to stay there? I think it, like it's, uh, like the director's whole piece about being both old and modern. I think they did a very good job at uh, mimicking both aspects. The one thing I will say about, I guess, style back in that time, I don't know how anybody wore suits that (laughs) baggy. They look
1: comfortable, man.
0: It just seems like it would, I don't know. I I would think that if you're running after somebody, something like that would be encumbering.
1: Man, I don't know. I think your, your uh, kids someday will want to look back at your jeans that you wore in junior high and say, uh, why were they so baggy? But they were so comfortable.
0: Oh, no. oh, I agree with that, but I'm not running after
1: bad guys. <laughs> oh, man. Clothes are most comfortable when they best barely touch you. Um, <laughs> uh, um, no hey. no
0: skin, skinny jeans for us.
1: No, no, not for me. The uh, fun fun wardrobe story is Crow wanted to come off as big, and he's not the biggest guy in the whole world. As I mentioned in the book, he's the biggest guy in the police force. And so he asked a, a wardrobe dir- uh, director uh, Ruth Myers uh, to make his sm- suit small, so it seemed like he was busting out of his suit. And uh, being a, a aficionado of fashion and uh, the aesthetics of the time and whatnot, she said, she goes, that's just bad sewing, and didn't choose to go that route. And uh, Crow had actually an article where someone said people who are dressed well in movies. And he actually got into this and uh, he cut it out and gave it to her because he's supposed to be a blunt instrument and an unimaginative dresser. But uh, he was saying, like, you dressed me too well, but you made me look good. So thank you. But kind of like uh, (laughs) wink, wink, nod, nod. You made me look too good. So.
2: And and like I said, nothing made me happier than watching a bunch of dudes in suits with shotguns running around having a shootout like that. It just, that not only is it like great stylistically and costume wise, but it just, just looks cool.
0: Yeah. Let's be honest. If you haven't seen gangster squad, you should watch gangster squad. Josh Brolin.
1: Another thing that I looked for there was, Ed Exley's got these really pale blues and icy grays, which kind of goes with his character. And it's interesting, again, back to Bud White, uh, Russell Crowe's character. He's got a lot of warm browns, and that shows the warmth in his character. And Those things kind of set up, you know, Exley's stern. And then obviously you got uh, Jack, who's got a flare, and you know, he's a uh, he's he's out to make a statement
2: for sure. And we haven't even talked about the the thing with Exley's glasses too that that was a very big character uh, sticking point.
1: Stop telling a man that carries a gun to take his glasses off. (laughs) (laughs) Please put them on.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he told him to take them off and he's like, just don't shoot me.
1: (laughs) That's a great, that's a a good comment about wardrobe there. And then another one of my favorite pieces of wardrobe is uh, Kim Basinger. She's beautiful, by the way. And that first appearance... The reveal, as she's in this black cloak with the white framing of her face along the trim of her hood, and the way the camera rolls around and shoots her, that's just such a good reveal, and that's such a good use of the wardrobe to make this dramatic unveiling of what is a very important character. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's amazing. And uh, Kim said that she had a hard time with some of the elegant uh, clothes that she was wearing she admits to being a bit of a tomboy and uh, she's got a very cute Georgia kind of accent so she's she's not necessarily what you perceive on the screen but uh that's acting she she uh she yep. she uh, she comes across as everything they. and she got an Oscar for it too so yeah uh, uh Tyler what do you think about the yellow tones of this movie there's like none of the reds are in there things are desaturated very yellow why do you think that was
2: to To kind of go with uh, what we were talking about with Hansen and what he wanted to do with the aesthetic of the movie, it it kind of deep down it's like a very dirty story. Nobody like there are heroes, but they're not necessarily good guys. they They all do something not great character wise throughout the course of the movie everyone thinks of LA and like the movie even starts out with it with, with, uh, Danny DeVito's voiceover and talking about the glitz and the glamor of Hollywood and all of that. And then everything is dark and cold and yellow and kind of dirty throughout the whole entire movie. And I, I think it's kind of counter you know, countering what people think LA is.
1: Huh. I have a little bit of a different take on that one, but, uh, Brian, how about you? What do you think about this, uh, it's a big stylistic decision, and it carries throughout the whole movie. No reds, no saturated blues. Only the coolest of grays and blues, uh, and lots of yellow everywhere. Um, you know, pale yellow. Uh, I mean, uh, what do you make of this? Do you like it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and to compound what uh, Tyler was saying, you know, one of the hallmarks of noir cinema is moral ambiguity, and I feel like that really feeds into that sense that you may have characters. Doing things that they think is right and that they're putting out there that they think this is the right thing to do, but there's a whole spectrum of feelings you can have on that matter on whether or not they're actually doing the right thing or not, and that's that's what makes these movies so much fun.
1: It is pretty pervasive. There are moments where they where things do go a little bit uh colorful uh, when they're in the black neighborhoods. Uh, I feel like there's some moments there where. The desaturation is less dramatic than on the interiors or the night scenes. I think that uh, for Curtis Hansen, he mentions a strong sense of sunlight and shadow. There's parts of the California that are, as Tyler mentioned, in the shadows and are gritty and some of the things that he's talking about. But it's also contrasted with the sunlight. And so when you're in Lynn's house, things are very bright, white and fantasy filled. And it's the finest of fine things and like really nice white light coming in. And similarly, at Patchett's house, uh, going back to the Neutra's level house, again, that green, bright lawn that he's hitting golf balls on and the way the light's pouring into his library, it seems like a very different place. So you've got the place of the celebrities, but you've also got the places of the gangsters and the grit and stuff. So I actually see this as a moment of contrast. And the cops live in the intersection.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, I, I think that that is also a very valid point. And that's the, uh, the the beauty of film was we all kind of can take away something different and take away, uh, you know, form our own opinions.
1: One last lighting comment. I love the light that pours through the bullet holes. So they park the cars outside and the headlights uh, light an otherwise dark uh, hotel interior as the uh, the fight ensues. I just, I really loved the, I, I had to make a note of that one. I said, man, that's just really good lighting.
2: Well, not just that, the... Uh, they're before all the cars start showing up. They're they're basically in the darkness, and you just see the headlights kind of come in the in the background, and then turn off. And you're like, oh, here comes trouble. Like it's like a great signifier of here comes trouble, especially once you know the second, the third, and the fourth. And it's just kind of like the calm before the storm. It's kind of setting you up for that.
0: Yeah, it was cool.
1: Let's do a brief uh, look for this. Brian, do you have one look for this moment?
0: My look for this moment, and this is one of my favorite parts of the movie, is when uh, Kevin Spacey and Guy Pearce get back out to the car after he he mistook the actual actress for for a hooker that had been made up as the actress. And he just had a drink thrown in his face, uh, Guy Pearce had, and they're sitting in the car and they just look at each other and start laughing. Uh, That's a camaraderie moment that I felt like Guy Pearce's character had not had yet. And it's just one of those things that like that's a story police careers are made up of stories and that that sort of signified. I know he was kind of getting the pat on the back from everybody after uh, killing those guys, but it just kind of signified the first time he had had some real like pat on the back moment with another cop.
1: I like it. Tyler, look for this.
2: I'm just very fascinated with Guy Pearce. I mean, I I think he's a fantastic actor. But uh, one of the things that I read is, I guess, James Elroy was doing a reading in Australia. And uh, Guy Pearce was uh, was in the audience. And someone had asked James Elroy, are they any of his stuff getting made into movies? He actually said, yes, they're actually going to be adapting LA Confidential. And it's actually going to be starring two Australian actors, to which everyone broke out laughing. They thought it was hysterical, and they thought that he was just saying that because he was in Australia. And so he, it gave him doubts about doing the movie, because it was, he literally saw the idea of two Australian guys leading a big Hollywood movie as a joke.
1: All right. My, my look for this moment is going to be the body count in this movie equals 30 dead bodies. So, my favorite of which is a, a big rat under the house. So, <laughs> Brian, how's this movie affect you, man?
0: Um, this is just one of those movies that puts me in a uh, a happy place in terms of how movies watch. I mean, it's thoroughly entertaining, uh, the ending is very satisfactory just in terms of, of what happens and how it culminates and everything. Uh, this is a highly rewatchable film that you know you can just put on basically whenever you want to.
1: Absolutely, Tyler. How's this movie affect you? Uh,
2: I would agree, and I, I, I don't know why I've become this person, but I, I've, I've started to to be a big mentioner of runtime of movies and how long movies are, and uh, the runtime of this movie is two hours and eighteen minutes, and. I probably could have continued to watch it for two or three more hours. Like it, the I I was just constantly absorbed in the movie even watching it now knowing where it was going. I felt like I noticed different things and you know as it was kind of brought up earlier I thought of things differently than than how I'd originally been interpreting them and I it it didn't feel its length and I I it's just a very enjoyable movie with arguably one of the better shootouts to conclude a film
1: for me and i'm going to be a little more specific on this one i really like russell's crow character and how he uh kind of cuffs and uh hits the wife beater in the beginning uh somehow this is a form of justice that i kind of root for to happen more often and in, in the limited times and i have seen a moment or two i won't be too specific you see a disturbing thing happen between a husband and a wife or a boyfriend and a girlfriend and uh, something abusive. You do wish sometimes that Russell Crowe would come from behind uh, them and uh, like uh, beat the dude up.
2: And he, he did not care. He, it was something he believed in, and he stood up for it regardless.
1: So uh, my favorite time of the show, superlative time. Uh, it's time to find out what you guys like best in this movie. Tyler, give us your MVP.
0: Guy Pierce.
1: Guy Pierce, uh Brian.
0: Yeah, this one's going to be a tough one for me because there are so many parts of this movie that uh I really really liked. I'm going to give my MVP to Russell Crowe just based on where where I was in terms of his career when I watched this movie.
1: And I think Mary's actually with you on this one. She she's uh she's not a Russell Crowe fan. She says this is her favorite performance of his as well so but for me i'm gonna go with the curtis hansen i just think the fact that he helped produce this thing he had to go to bat for it really hard they did not want to make a movie that had multiple characters in it they did not want to make a retro movie they did not want to do a movie without big stars in it and he did such a good job to find the right tone in the movie to tell a great story and he just does an amazing job here so i'm gonna go curtis hansen Best supporting actor, Tyler.
2: Can I cheat a little bit on this one? I guess. <laughs> My best supporting actor, I put that in quotes, air quotes, uh, is the score. Okay. I love the I like score it. of this movie. And I think it set the tone so many times in the movie. And. Uh, i i yeah i we hadn't mentioned it yet and i was sitting here thinking about it and that, that that's my best supporting actor
1: i like it uh, i'm glad you i'm glad you brought it up we're, we were a little long in the tooth and i wanted to move through some of these things i'm sorry i kind of cut soundtrack out, but good job to at least call attention to it it is really good brian best supporting actor
0: I'm going to go with supporting actor with Cromwell here. He, it's not like he's never played a bad guy before or since. I don't know. He definitely put out this eerie, ugh, this guy uh, through most of it. I I felt like you could tell he was somewhat duplicitous from the beginning uh, with just how he handled Exley's character. But then given his, his verbiage on when he praises other cops, how much he kind of deplored what he was willing to do. Like he got it from a political standpoint, but as a detective, he was kind of like, they're going to hate you hard.
1: Well, I'm going to go with the Academy on this one. I'm going to go with Kim Basinger. Uh, or Kim Basinger. I always mess that up and go back and forth on that one. But um, <laughs> uh, I think she just does an amazing job. She looks so pretty in the outfits that she's got on. And she just plays a part that is so important to this because she is the mirror that, sees through everybody for what they are whether they see it themselves or whether they're deluding themselves for what they are so great character and she is just so good at it so um good job kim basinger you deserve that oscar i say so um agreed hidden hidden gem uh this is somebody who didn't get the praise that they want maybe somebody buried in the cast um tyler who do you like for hidden gem
2: I'm gonna go with uh, David Strathairn as Pierce Patchett. I love it. I think people most know him as uh, from Good Night and Good Luck, but I think that he, like, even the first time you look at him and he's the the way his he carries himself, like, I think he had like one like a kind of like a seedy mustache and like I feel like there was always more that they could have done with him to. Make him seedier. Like I feel like he he was putting it there. It's just they didn't have. The, it was cut for time. I don't know um, that he's seedy.
1: I mean, he he treats his ladies pretty well for by uh, you know pimp standards. A pimp standpoint. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> a- if I were, if I were gonna be a pimp, I would want to live in the Lovell house and I would treat my ladies much nicer and pay them much nicer and make sure they were nice homes too because they're the ones doing all the hard work. So. Um. But-
2: that that's fair. I guess I mean more just like the idea of what his character, what, what his character is doing, like what his chosen profession is, is not a. It's uh, not Ideal, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Brian, hidden gem. My hidden gem is going to be Ron
0: Rifkin. Uh, he plays the DA. Uh, I'm a huge fan of this actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays one of the best antagonists in television on uh, Alias which was a huge, you know, his, his portrayal of Arvin Sloan is one of the uh, kind of hallmarks of television for me. So um, this was before that, but just fantastic. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of his.
1: I love both of those picks. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit deeper, and I'm going to say Simon Baker caught my eye and just is memorable. He plays Matt Reynolds, the aspiring actor who's uh, setting out to frame the DA and out him as a gay man. Somehow, he just, uh, his time on screen is short, but uh, I like his nervous energy that, uh, you know, he's just so desperate to make it, which is another moment of L.A. People come to L.A. with big dreams. You know, he's willing to do anything to get a shot to be in a TV show. So Tyler, if you had to recast somebody, which this is hard, if you had to recast somebody, who would it be and who would you put in their place?
2: I've got two. Uh, One has nothing to do with uh, performance. The other does. Uh, Sid Hudgens is described as a tall and sickly thin man in the in the novel which Danny DeVito is not so I just think that it was more to get Danny DeVito apart in the movie uh, I think it would have been interesting to see who they could have gotten else in that role uh, Boo. I I like I said I, I had no problem with DeVito in the role it's just it, it's back to the whole Jack Reacher Tom Cruise thing where he doesn't look. Oh
1: like god, the, I like the totally agree with described. you. Um, so, uh, like, Devito's never been a worse man. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Devito's narration is just so good though. I I love him, and he does seem like this energetic guy who's driving around town, driving up controversy.
2: Um, and I I like him. I'm I'm I like Danny DeVito in the role, just as described on the page. He's different than. So I'd be interested to see who else they could have gotten for that. The other person I actually would have recast was the mentalist, Mr. Simon Baker. Um, I didn't particularly enjoy him in this. Um, but the, the flip side of that is I, I don't know who else I would have put in there. So uh, I'll hang my head in shame on that one.
1: Yeah, ouch, man. That, you got me on both of those. I, I loved I, – I, hurt me on DeVito there. Uh, Brian, recast.
0: Um, I'm gonna kinda tie it back to something I had said earlier in the show just uh to have that plug again. But I'm not saying this needs to be recast because it doesn't, but um I could easily see Hugh Jackman playing Jack Vincennes, just this Oh yeah, you know, high flying, like got that charisma, this is what I do. Um I think that would have been an awesome uh like if they were to redo this movie now. Um, I could see see him being pulled uh, for that piece. Um, past that, I don't know. There's not a whole lot you could you could really change for me. I agree that Devito was good for it, but I haven't read the book. I will say that in terms of of casting gone wrong, I completely agree with the Jack Reacher piece. Um, I've read several of Lee Child's books, and you couldn't get someone further from the visual. Of Jack Reacher than Tom Cruise Although I did enjoy both of the Jack Reacher movies um, mm-hmm. The other one The only thing that I would put anywhere close To a, a miss On casting would have been Tom Hanks as uh, Robert Langdon In Angels and Demons and Inferno And uh, Da Vinci Ooh. Code Okay, That was another brutal one Brutal <laughs>
1: miscast So LA Confidential though you're going with uh, Jackman over Spacey
2: I also think Ryan Gosling would have been good as Vincennes, but that's just me.
1: Okay. Well the thing is he he played that part
0: already. Not that specific part, but he plays that character in Gangster Squad with yeah. Josh Roland. So that's like, what made me he's think already of it. kind of done it because they I mean that's another noir movie. Um and they pull in characters similar to these. Um, whether you want to say as an homage to it or or whatever, but it's literally a prequel to this because they're going after Mickey Cohen, and yeah. Mickey Cohen goes to jail at the beginning of this movie
1: so I'm gonna go with for my recast um, paleo Ser- Serganti uh, or Sergianti. I'm not good with this name here, but anyway, he plays Johnny Stampanato, the goon who uh, uh, gets his ball squeezed uh, by <laughs> Russell Crowe. I, I wanted something better from this actor, and I, I'm kind of taking the easy road out because I love the casting of this movie. Love Crowe, love Spacey, love uh, Pierce uh, and Cromwell too, and uh, Strathern. Uh, I just so I am gonna put Jerry O'Connell. You just wanted to see somebody else get their balls squeezed. Yeah, and I wanted that to be Jerry O'Connell because I think he would, <laughs> I think he would uh, be the right amount of jerk beforehand slash be funny enough uh, when that happens to him. So, he's uh, coming off of Jerry Maguire and Joe's apartment, and I he's doing Scream Two in 1997. But I think he has time to get his ball squeezed in the meantime.
0: Cinematic masterpiece, Scream Two.
1: Yes.
2: E- either him or <laughs> to even call from from another actor who's appearing in Scream Two is Timothy Oliphant.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, there you go! Best shot. I tell you movie. what, there's. Oh. I tell you what, Timothy Oliphant. Just because you brought that up, how about Timothy Oliphant instead of Guy Pierce? Ooh,
2: that that hurts. Now 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 I'm the one that's hurting.
1: That was his MVP man. That's a low blow. <laughs> uh, I bet, love
2: Timothy Oliphant though.
1: So uh, best shot of the too. movie, Tyler.
2: Uh, I, I think we already said it. It's the shot at the end with the the all the cars pulling up with their lights and then going dark and kind of really setting the scene for the final gun Uh gun fight.
1: There are alternate posters uh, that have that as part of the uh, image of the movie, so good choice on that. Brian, best cinematic moment, or sorry, best shot.
0: Yeah, I. gosh, that was mine too.
1: It's okay. You're allowed to agree. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I don't know. I don't know. I was like desperately trying to think, okay, what's my next favorite? Uh, Um, If if I'm going to go with the next favorite, I actually really like the shot where uh, Vincennes is dancing with a girl and Danny DeVito comes up.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: And he's like, can I get, and she just like totally bounces on him and he just has that look like, hey, it's not for everybody. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> um my best shot i mentioned ahead of time was the camera rotating around kim basinger at the uh market in the beginning when we first meet her and she's in that black cloak with the white trim on there and there's red red lips and her pale face um as uh crow meets her for the first time and she's striking and he he takes a notice of her i just I've, i i mentioned before how much i love that scene so um also, just a small nod to Ed stopping the elevator with his shotgun, firing it into the doorway, and the camera shifts as we see mm-hmm. his face like at a moment where he's really shaken up. So, um, I, Yeah, that's a good one. That's a very close one. I,
0: I know they're, they're actually pointing this out in the movie, but I also like the whole thing where uh, you have Kevin Spacey uh, talking to DeVito about, I'm going to bring him out here, and then you can see the movie release in the background.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So that whole shot down the street.
2: Yeah, no, that that was a good one too, and really, really good telling of uh, Vincent's character as well.
1: So yeah. best best scene, Tyler.
2: Um, I actually did a report on this scene, uh, in film school. Um, it's the scene where they're interrogating the three African American gentlemen, and he's flipping certain parts of the conversation so that they can all hear and intimidate each other and like all that kind of stuff I, I just think it's a a brilliant scene and one of the first times you act you actually see ed exley like you actually see him be a good cop rather than people telling you that how good he is like you see like the all the mechanisms working in his brain and i think it's amazing
1: good insights on that one brian best scene
0: I think I'm actually going to echo your uh, your your elevator scene, but the entire thing that comes of uh, him taking the guy who didn't really want to go with him into the room, his partner gets shot. He kills the first guy like that whole him just really breaking into that role that he wasn't supposed to be good at, according to Cromwell.
1: Okay, yeah um, this is a hard one i i've I had a, maybe two runner ups in but the one that I'm gonna pick is the interrogation scene where Ed actually goes from each of the black uh young men and pulls the lever to like share information across the intercom to pin them up against each other. Uh, by manipulating what they hear and what they don't hear, I like that the guy pees himself. I like that one guy is difficult to get along with and he's just breaking him down. And then out of nowhere, Russell Crowe can't take it anymore. It's not going fast enough for him. He plays Russian roulette by popping the gun in that guy's mouth. All the while, there's another great shot. Uh, this is very hard to do. The director is shooting through the glass and you can see the people on the inside of the interrogation room. And you see the reflection, and it's very clear, so you can see them. But you also see into the actual room where the uh, subject is being interrogated. It's just really well shot. I love the pace through there, and that's probably my favorite scene in the movie. But I do have to give a nod to Bud and Ed uh, shaking down the DA and dangling him out the window.
0: Oh,
2: yeah. It's interesting that your interpretation of that scene uh, was Bud losing patience. Because um, I always read that as that's the moment where the, it's mentioned that they're holding a woman and that they basically were raping her. Right. And he couldn't, he couldn't take that anymore. Yeah. Like his, his sensibility to protect women just like, you know, really shone through there.
1: Absolutely. And this was a hard one to pick good scene on. So, I mean, there are like five other ones I wanted to give a credit to, but that's my favorite. Change one thing, Tyler.
2: Gosh, I, I don't think I would.
1: Ugh, coward. I uh, know.
2: <laughs>
1: all right, uh, Brian. Hey, I went,
2: at, I went after Danny DeVito. I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm not too much of a coward.
1: Okay, you want to make Danny DeVito taller. That's your change one thing. Give, <laughs> give him stills. <laughs>
0: Stretch him out. Yeah,
1: long legs. Uh, Brian, change one thing. You know,
0: I'm actually going to echo something that I had said uh, already for uh, Black Hawk Down. This, uh, this movie couldn't have been longer.
1: You know what? Yep. I normally disagree with you, but this time I just had such a good time with it. You're right. I wanted Hanson to make the other four move, or the other the rest of the quartet. I love like yeah. it so much. Um, I had
0: I had actually seen where this was uh, originally slated to be a mini series, and I was like, oh, don't tease me with that.
1: If you buy the Blu-ray, uh, you can see the pilot episode of uh, a 2000 uh, a year 2000 uh, um, L.A. Confidential pilot. So which I think oh, had man.
2: Kiefer Sutherland in it, or I think I was trying. to... It was supposed to air on HBO or something like that.
1: Yeah. So for me, I'm going to go with my change. One thing is I'd like to make uh, Bud is uh, more injured than I would like in the end. He appears to be a vegetable and unable to talk, move, and like lens driving him off into the sunset. He got shot in the face. I don't. I would like one in the stomach and uh, maybe in an arm band. Uh, I'd like to think that he's not uh, ruined for the rest of his life. And maybe he's not, but I think he is. So, um... Well, I mean,
0: it went through his cheek. I'm sure that's very unpleasant, and that definitely speaks to why he can't speak. But, uh... Um, I just want to let yeah, him know that he's...
1: I, I, want to know, I want to know he's going to be okay. So this is my change one thing. That's fair. You know, maybe he loses an arm or something like that, but, you know, uh... I, I just... I don't like the idea of having, uh... Russell That's Crow my sitting, punching arm. Yeah, I, I I don't want to see Bud sitting there in a the living room like ten years from now, like with like a uh, Lynn like spoon feeding him applesauce, saying, "Come on, dear, you have to eat." So
2: that that is one thing that you can appreciate about this movie is your two stars do get roughed up in the end of this movie, and uh, one of one of my favorite things to point out is they actually had to reload in this movie, like they didn't have the magical clip that they that seems to never run out of bullets. They had to reload and they got shot up real good.
1: Okay. And best quote, Tyler,
2: I'm going to have the go with, uh, they know me as Veronica, but you know, me as Lynn
1: and Brian Mm. best quote.
0: I don't know, man. I'm, I'm okay.
1: Uh, uh, Yeah.
0: I have a hard, I I have a hard time picking this one. I've got, Um,
1: I've got one for you here and that's by captain Dudley Smith. And he goes, I wouldn't trade all the places. Uh, I wouldn't trade places with Ed actually right now for all of the whiskey in Ireland.
0: Yeah, <laughs> boyo.
1: <laughs> well, thank you guys for coming on the show and doing this. This has been a lot of fun. But before we go into the, do the ratings and reviews and carry this one home, Tyler, can you do me a favor and tell people one more time about after the credits.
2: Uh yeah, it's my entertainment website that I just started. We have everything from uh, movie reviews. We uh, we just started a segment uh, called Late to the Party, where we watch something that everybody else has already watched and kind of review it. We also, you know, looking to do things like where we bring the light movies that are on VOD. Uh, just really anything entertainment based, uh, but uh, mostly uh, mostly on movies.
1: Awesome, and it is such a cool site. Please do check out after the credits. uh Tyler's doing some great work over there. So, five-star rating scale, does this movie hold up? Tyler?
2: Oh, absolutely. I I I would even say it held up better than than I remembered it.
1: All right. Five stars though? Oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah, it's not not only is it a great movie, a great crime movie, it's a fantastic movie movie and uh yeah, no, I'd recommend it to anybody.
1: All right. And Brian, uh, five-star scale, what do you give this movie?
0: Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give it a five as well. It's fantastic.
1: I'm going to make it a clean sweep. Uh, for the <laughs> third time of the show. Uh, it's history, we've got a five-star, three-way clean sweep. I love this movie, if you couldn't tell already. So, uh Kudos to this movie. Let's talk about the movie we're going to do next time. Brian, you want to help me pick that?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think it's time to get funny. Don't you? Sure. Yeah.
0: Funny is always good.
1: So we got three funny movies. Uh, So we got half baked is option. Number one from 1998, a story of three, not so bright men who come up with a very serious, crazy scheme to get a friend out of jail. Option two, Coming to America from 1988. An extremely pampered African-American prince travels to Queens, New York, and goes undercover to find a wife who he can respect for her intelligence as well as her will. And option number three, Friday from 1995. Two homies, Smokey and Craig, smoke uh, smoke a dope dealer's weed and try to figure a way to get the $200 they owe to the dealer by 10 p.m. that same night. I think we're
0: going to go with uh, Coming to America.
1: Okay. It's a good pick. It's a good pick. It's a good one. Solid, solid.
2: Fantastic pick. I don't think you could go wrong with either, any of those three.
1: That's right. And uh, so, Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. You've been a great host. Uh, Mm -hmm. And um, Brian, as well, thank you for coming on. And uh,
0: Not a problem, man. Always a pleasure.
1: Holding it down, as always.
0: Had a lot of fun.
1: To uh, so all the lords, ladies, and knights of the movie, Retro Movie Roundtable, please reach out to us, like us on Facebook, write to us on Retro Movie, Round, uh, Retro movie Roundtable at yahoo.com, Give us a, uh, let us know what you think of the show, uh, we really appreciate reviews from iTunes that we get that helps the show grow, uh, like us on whatever wherever you get your podcast and uh, tell a friend, uh, we really want to help grow the show, if you know somebody who would be good to come on the show, we're always looking for that too, so as always, thank Thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian?
0: I'm going to give you guys a quote from another one of my favorite detectives. This is Marty Hart from HBO's True Detective, and it has specifically to do with detectives. You know, I've seen all different types. We all fit a certain category the bully, the charmer, the uh, surrogate dad, the man possessed by ungovernable rage, the brain. And any of those types could be a good detective. And any of those types could be an incompetent <laughs> shit heel. <laughs>